And if you're able to remain standing for just a bit longer, we want to continue our worship now by looking at God's Word. Thank you guys for leading us again this week as we sing. I'm so grateful for how you help us to that end. This morning, we want to look at Exodus chapter 20, the first three verses. That's on page 61. If you would like to use a Bible from the church, you can grab that. It should be in front of you. Turn to page 61 or turn to Exodus chapter 20, the first three verses. These are God's words for us today, and this is what God says. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that there is no word like your word, that you would give it to us. We're thankful that we have it. We're thankful that it's in front of us. We're thankful that we can spend some moments together now looking at it. And we pray that the the very power of your words uh, would land in our hearts and souls and lives and that you would shape and reshape us, that you would change us through your word, by your spirit. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we did uh, an overview of these uh, ten words, the Ten Commandments, uh, and uh, now our intent is to take each one a week at a time and to look at uh, these ten words a bit more closely. Remember, uh, these are the words of a father to his son. These words of instruction and command are words of life and words of freedom. These words are, 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 the, are directives for Israel, for the people of God, that we would live in accordance with these words and that we would, as Israel of old was commissioned to, that we would display the greatness of God before the whole world. This morning we look at this first word, two things I want us to to think about as we spend the next few moments considering the first word. First of all, I want us to maybe grasp a bit better an understanding of the Redeemer's first word. And then secondly, we'll spend some time uh, uh, considering how uh, it, it works out in terms of practicing the Redeemer's first word. So, uh, some, some bits of explanation concerning this first command, and then uh, some bits of uh, uh, application for this first command. Well, verse 3 is the first word, is the first command. Uh, you shall have no other gods before me. The, the first word of the covenant is, 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 not, is not put there by some random chance. Uh, it, it truly does reflect the essential priority for the people of God. The, 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 the positive version of this statement, you shall have no other gods before me, 
is made by Jesus himself in Matthew 22, verses 37 and 38, uh, when he was asked what is the greatest commandment, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind, uh, and uh, for this is the first and great commandment. So there is, there is nothing uh, in this first word that ever expires. And there's really nothing in this first word that is uh, new or novel. What God is stating to Israel here in this first com command has uh, always been and always will be the main thing, the most essential thing. This one command, you shall have no other gods before me, uh, is at the heart of, of any other command given by God. The crux of all the other commands of God, the crux of the, of the rest of these nine words, the crux of any other command or judgment or statute given by God, the, the crux of, of any other command or duty or obligations before God originates in this first duty before God. In fact, to truly obey this first word, you shall have no other gods before me, is to genuinely obey all the rest. Or the way Jesus put it in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Conversely, if we, if we disobey any of the other commands of God, it is because we have first disobeyed this first word from God. Now, the immediate basis, remember the first five commands or words we, we mentioned last week, What's one of the things that's unique about the first five is they each have some sort of explanation associated with them. And uh, that's true with this first one. It's true with the next four as well. But so the immediate basis for this first word is what the Lord has just immediately done for Israel. He says there in verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Why is it that they are to have no other gods before them, before, them, before, before him? Because he is the God who has just rescued them. He is the God who has just saved them. But now walk with me. Kind of, We're going to backtrack for a second and uh, let's make some biblically uh, logical uh, connection of dots here. This, this God who has just rescued them, who is the, which is the immediate basis for why they should have no other gods before him, uh, it, it is, is, uh, is, he, is the, he is the God who um, has spoken to their father Abraham centuries ago. He is the God who thus has sustained the Hebrew people for ages. 
In fact, remember in Exodus chapter 2, as we're being oriented to the burden of their bondage in Egypt, it says that, that God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. You see, there, that this God who has immediately rescued them is the, is the God of their fathers. He's the God who made the promise in Genesis 12 to Abraham, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will, uh, cur uh, uh, I will curse him who dishonors you, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. You see, the, the, the God who has rescued uh, Israel from Egyptian captivity is the God of their fathers, and who is the God who, who promises to bless all the families of the earth. For he, in fact, continuing connecting the dots and tracing backwards, he is the Lord God who made heaven and earth. The God who has rescued them from Egyptian captivity is the God of whom it is said in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. You trace this God who has rescued them all the way back, and what you find is that he, in fact, is the only one true God who made all that exists. So this first word, in addition to be, being their first duty, is also a word of reality. In other words, we are to worship no other God because there really is no other God. This God who has just immediately rescued them from Egyptian captivity is not only their sole redeemer, but he has been their sole sustainer and he is their sole creator of them and all. And thus, he is the sole ruler over them and over all. Now, on the one hand, this is going to be a learning curve for uh, the Israelites. They have spent hundreds of years in Egyptian captivity. They have spent hundreds of years learning false things and even worshiping false things in reference to the one true God. And, 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 and the part of the learning curve on this first word is uh, uh, they will need to unlearn what they learned in Egypt. What they learned in Egypt was there's lots of gods. And that's what was needed because all the gods of the Egyptians, just like all the other false gods that present themselves and that are created in people's imaginations, all, all of the other gods that they learned about in Egypt, guess what? They had limits. There was limits to those gods' reach and to those gods' abilities. They, there, was, there, were, there were gods who did a good job in the mountains, but they didn't do a good job in the valleys. There was gods who did a good job in the seas, but not a good job on the lands. And so you had to have lots of gods to cover yourself. And whereas what they're going to already, what they've already 
learned on some level and will continue to learn is uh, they are to worship God alone because there really is no other God to worship for there really is no other God needed. And so the first step for the Israelites, the first step for any of God's people in all time to, to walk in true freedom uh, is to realize that we can now be done with delusion, that, that we can now embrace true reality. At the heart of the universe is one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We can embrace that reality and, and work out from that crux, that center, that core. We can be released from uh, darkened, ignorant, hard-heartedness. At least that's the way the Apostle Paul frames it in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 18. Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. In other words, uh, disconnected from reality uh, because of the sinful condition of the human heart, we are in fact darkened and ignorant and hard-hearted in reference to God. We don't see him and honor him as the one true God, even though he has proven and demonstrated that, in fact, reality is he is the only and one true God. So the first step of reality, the first step of walking in freedom, and this is a doozy of a step, is, is, to, is, is, is that there is only one God, and so there is only one God to worship. And yet... What do we make about all of the alleged other gods? Well, as humanity rejects the one true God, they don't walk away from worship. That's a prof- I hope you lean into that. That's a profound reality. In other words, uh, while, while the human heart is corrupted and... Um, and that corruption is because of the condition of sin. Um, nevertheless, all of humanity still bears proof of being made by God for God. For all of humanity are still incessant worshipers. It's just that in our fallen condition, we will find anyone or anything to worship but the one true God. Romans 1 describes the pheno- this phenomenon psychologically for us. It says that in Romans 1 and verses 17 and 18 um, that, um, what, that God has plainly revealed himself to all of mankind. So he's plainly revealed and not only has he plainly revealed himself, all of humanity have clearly seen his plain revelation of himself. And, and yet what Romans 1 tells us is that we take what God has plainly revealed, we take what we have clearly seen, and we suppress that truth. And then he says in verse 19, um, uh, I'm sorry, in, in, verse, in verses 21 and 23, for, all, um, for although they, they knew God, meaning they, they knew about God, although they knew God, they did not 
honor him as God or give thanks to him. You see, a fundamental aspect of worshiping the one true God is that we acknowledge him. We acknowledge what he has shown us. We don't suppress that fact. We, we acknowledge it and we return honor and thanks to him. But, it says, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And it's analogous to what he said in Ephesians 4, 17 and 18. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God for images. And they worshipped and served, we're told in verse 25, uh, the, the creature rather than the creator of all things. So while there really is no other God, the worship of something created, falsely put forth as a God, occurs. This is the fundamental tragedy of the universe. This is the chief sin on the planet. This is the deepest offense before God. And this is the plainest basis for all of mankind's just condemnation before God. Jeremiah put it this way as he described this most heinous of crime against God. In chapter 2 of Jeremiah, he says, be appalled, O heavens. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn out cisterns, wells, for themselves, broken cisterns, wells, that can hold no water. Be appalled! How offended are you that the worship of false gods flourishes? It's what offends God. It's what offends the heavens. That, that humanity would seek life and peace and joy and love and strength in anything or anyone else other than God. The prophet Ezekiel framed it this way in chapter 14. Son of man, these men have taken idols into their hearts and uh, set a stumbling block of iniquity before their faces. Words, the word that the Bible uses to describe how the human heart creates out of their darkened, hard-hearted imaginations something other than the one true God to worship is idolatry, an idol. And idolatry is the worship of a false god, not merely bowing before a statute or a thing physically made, but, 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 but something that has seized a, the, the, the utmost loyalty and the, 
the utmost love and affection and desires of our hearts. That, that, that we've taken these, these notions of idols and we've internalized them so that it is they, something other than God, something other than the one true God, it is they, it is it that we pursue, that we focus on and not God. So let me be clear. All of the false gods are not really gods. They're just vain imaginations fabricated in the human heart. So when God says, you shall have no other gods before me, he's, he's, he's not saying, now I know there's lots of gods. You've got a lot to pick from. This, this is just another category of consumer choice here. Uh, you, you, got, you, got, you can go here, you can go there, you can go anywhere. Uh, but I'm hoping that I get to be chief out of them. No, no. It, it, there is no other gods. 1 Corinthians 8 Verses 4 and 5 makes that clear. It says, uh, an idol has no real existence. He, he calls idols so-called gods, quote-unquote. Affirming, as all the scripture does, that there is no God but God. This first word, as all of these words are, this first word is a gracious word from God. Remember, last week I said we've not switched from the gracious part of Exodus to the grumpy part of Exodus. This is a gracious word that a father would give these instructions to the son whom he loves. It's a gracious word because, as we've already been alluding to, it, it, it's, it's a gracious way to reset us back into reality. The generosity of God is, is seeping out all over these ten words. As God directs us back to himself and to himself alone for no false notion, no false God, no Error in place of God can help us. In other words, it's, it's, it's not compassionate for God to say, now look, I don't want to control you guys on this one. You just pick whatever God you want to pick, and that's okay. It all turns out good anyway. God knows better than that. God cannot let his people head for such a destructive end or means Isaiah 45, 21 says, Was it not I, the Lord, and there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior? There is none beside me. Or as he would allude to in Isaiah 46, verse 7, speaking of an idol, if one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. In other words, it's a gracious God to say, don't look to an idol because they ain't no help. This first word is, in fact, then, therefore, a gracious protection from destruction. Jesus says something to us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, about the exclusivity of God. 
And he, how he does that is so interesting. In the immediate preceding verses, he talks about not laying up treasures on earth that could get stolen and, and that can get lost and, 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 and get destroyed. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So on the one hand, um, he talks about the status of eternity and his loving care to give us wisdom about eternity. But then he also, after verse 24, he gives us instructions about this earth, about how to combat anxiousness and worry here on this earth. So God cares for us eternally, and God cares for us um, uh, in the immediate as well. And, and so our Lord says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to, to, the, to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, why is he telling us that? He's telling us out of the generosity of his loving heart. Because what he's wanting us to realize and connect the dots is who or what we worship results in either our ruination or our restoration. This is, this is big stakes at, 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 in play in terms of Heeding the kindness of this first word, you shall have no other gods before me. Second thing I want to spend just a few minutes on is something of the application. Practicing the Redeemer's first word. What, what, what does that look like in terms of we are to have no other gods before God? I mean, how does that shape my day, my week, my month, the rest of my life. Two things I want to say just in, in a broad way, and then I'll parse this down further. But, but first of all, almost kind of as a preliminary here, um, uh, to have no other gods before us in our lives and how that works itself out in terms of the function and application and practice of our lives means, first of all, that, that you and I would embrace only what the Lord reveals to us about himself and of himself. That, 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 that um, uh, we would, uh, I mean, how do we know of God and how do we know about this one true God and how do we know him? That is, how do we get to experience a true relationship with this God? Well, we can only know this God. We can only know about this God, and we can only know this God insofar as we receive what he has revealed about himself to us. In other words, you and I are not permitted to have thoughts about God that are not true of God. We'll, we'll bump into this probably next week under the second word uh, because I think it, it bears itself out at that point as, as well. But um, um, the word creativity is not a good word when it comes to fabricating uh, the God whom you worship. 
Now, God is creative, and we're to be creative in that sense, but not creative insofar as you and I get to creatively, I don't know, well, what do you think God is like? Well, I don't know, my brother-in-law said he's like, that. oh, yeah, I think that too, and oh, I think that. In other words, we, 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 we first have to make the case of where will we obtain the, the information concerning this one true God. This one true God has kindly, graciously revealed all that he wants us to know about him. He, he doesn't uh, allow for much wiggle room for us to make up our own imagination. So, so just for instance, say, so he says this is in verse 2, for I am the Lord um, your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So that's what God has revealed about himself. I did that. You, and we said, well, you know, I kind of I, I feel like, I kind of I feel like the Lord told me I had, a, I had a hand in my escape from Egypt. It was a partnership. You see that you're, you're, you're creating concepts about God that God says, uh-uh. You didn't get yourself out of the land of Egypt. I got you out of the land of Egypt. And if I hadn't got you out of the land of Egypt, do you know where you'd be? You'd still be in the land of Egypt. You ain't got this. It's a simple illustration, but parse it out all the way in terms of the Lord has given us his word to ensure against having fabrications of other gods to whom we think about and think of and seek. And we are, we are given his word that we might properly cultivate an exclusive relationship with the one true God predicated upon, rooted in, and experienced through his word. Oh, oh, hey, in other words, if we're going to worship God and God alone, then we must truly seek this God who is God alone in the only way this God has revealed himself to us through his word. Now, when I say his word, I clearly mean his written word, the scriptures. And yet what his written word, the scriptures testify to is the incarnate word, his son. And, and I don't mean those two as in terms of pitting one against the other. The, the written word, the scriptures prepare for, testify, announce, and explain the incarnate word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the incarnate word, uh, on the one hand, is the one who produced the written word, and, and yet he is also the one who is in perfect submission and compliance with the written word. So we, and you and I, we commune with the incarnate word by means of the written word. Second. So based upon what the word tells us about the Lord, that we will embrace um, all that the Lord does reveal about himself in his word. And what the scriptures do tell us in one way, shape, form, or another is this first word requires Israel. This first word requires um, any and all of God's people for all ages to mobilize all of our life in every sphere of our life around one simple ultimate loyalty. And this loyalty expresses itself in loving obedience to the one 
true God. He is Lord. He is King, and therefore He is to be honored and worshipped and obeyed. He is Creator, and He is Sustainer. And so therefore He is to be thanked. He is to be depended upon. He is to be submitted to. Just think of some passages that parse that out for us. There, there, there is no other God. How does that play out in terms of your and my confidence? In other words, how do we know that there is another God or not in my life? I don't know. Let me hear, let me hear what you brag about. Jeremiah 9 says, Thus says the Lord, let him who let, let, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his strength. Let not the rich man boast in his wisdom. But let him who boasts, boast in this. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Where does your wisdom come from? Where does your might come from? Where does your riches come from? What are you confident in? Or how about in our pursuits and priorities in terms of how we leverage our lives and our time to seek and to know God? Psalm 111 says, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty, is his work. His, his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. When you hear the pursuit of the psalmist there, he, he pursues uh, knowledge of God. He pursues knowing this God. Does your heart say yes? Or does your heart just say, I don't know, is the football game on yet? No, it's not. It comes on at two. Uh, or, or for what are we grateful? To whom do we praise? In what are we glad? Psalm 105 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make His deeds known among the peoples. Sing to Him. Sing praises to Him. Tell of His wonderful works. Glory in His name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. What makes you happy? To whom are you grateful? About whom do you sing praises and glory? Or where do you go when you're worried? When sorrow has overcome us. Psalm 123 says, To you I lift up my eyes. O you who are enthroned in the heavens, behold, as the eyes of the Servants look to the hand of their master, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. How are you getting out of that trouble? Who are you looking to? And then in, in, an, in a way that's very sobering, Who do you understand that you're accountable to? 
The book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verses 13 and 14 says, The end of the matter has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And yet that's not the last word here. And I'll, I'll try to wrap this up and close with this. Understanding that there is only one true God Understanding that we are to have no other God before us means that, that you and I will each stand before God and give an account of our life. And I just want you to realize that outside of Jesus, that's not going to be a good thing. It's a problem that you and I will stand before the one true God and give an account for our lives. It's a problem, but there's a solution. But you and I are not the solution. There is only one true God. There is only one true Savior. Acts 4 reminds us, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. The very God whom we have not worshipped and thanked and praised and obeyed and loved and trusted. It is this God who has initiated a rescue mission of love to seek and to save people like us who do not natively seek Him or honor Him. But He has sought us out out of the depths of His loving heart and He opens our eyes and changes our hearts and shows us the beauty and the glory of Jesus so that our hearts could be filled with a conviction that there is only one God, there is only one Savior, and His name is Jesus. The only one who has perfectly had no other gods before God is Jesus. The only one who has shown his love for this one true God by his perfect obedience to all of the commands of God is Jesus. And now the only one who can adequately be the atoning sacrifice for our sin, to take away our sins and to give us forgiveness and new life and eternal life, and adoption as sons, the only one who can redeem us, the only one who can change us is Jesus. Turn to Christ. Trust only in Him. Have no other saviors before you but Jesus. Father, thank You. Thank You, Father, that the depth of Your love is seen in how you have rescued us even when we have broken the most heinous offense towards you in the universe. You, the offended one, Father, have nonetheless pursued us and our forgiveness that we would be your well-loved children. And for that we are thankful. And we're thankful for the grace that you give to us in that you change our hearts, that now for the very first time in our lives through Jesus, we can begin to be a people who have no other gods before us.
For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing this song.